Life Radio. Stories at the intersection of music and life. Welcome to another episode of Music Life Radio. I am your host, Dan Sauter. Music Life Radio is a free podcast available on iTunes and your interwebs at musicliferadio.com and features interviews and stories about and related to music. Today on the program, Eric Kaur interviews the comedian, poet, and self-help author, Bucky Sinister. Sit back and relax to another episode of Music Life Radio, this one entitled Sensitive Badass, Bucky Sinister, Part 1. We're going to start this off with a little comedy by Bucky Sinister, this one from his album called What Happens in Narnia Stays in Narnia. Uh, there's, a, uh, there's a song about heroin addiction by the laws. It's called uh, There She Goes. And for some reason, it's been covered by a Christian band called Sixpence None the Richer. And even more confusing is the fact that they use it to sell birth control pills. The, on the ortho tricycling commercial, it's There She Goes. And it's about like being strung out. It's amazing. You know, it's just like, wow, you know, Creed is going to be doing, you know, the Buzzcocks Orgasm Addict for Viagra. And then, like, after that, it's going to be, like, you know, Striper covering, uh, you know, Sweet Jane for, like, Equal or something. It's just, there's, like, some motherfucker out there, there's some motherfucker with, like, some, like, inappropriate sense of ironic detachment. And, I, you know, it, it's like the same guy, I know who he is, too. he's the same guy who used that fucking, like, the Judas Priest song for the Burger King commercial. He's just getting more and more powerful, he's getting more and more risky, like, no one's stopping him. I just, I don't know, if you guys figure out who he is, like... Specifically, let me know. I'll have a talk with him. All right. Yeah. Welcome to Music Life Radio. I'm here with uh, Bucky Sinister today. My name is Eric Kaur from the band Gunpowder. Bucky is a poet, comedian, and writer. And before we go any further, I, 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 one thing I have to say is when I say poet, when I say writer, is... You're the only person who I've bought books by where I've given those books away and I never get them back. <laughs> so I buy them again. I loan them I, out again. Yeah. I don't get them back. And I can't give them out anymore because I can't get some of them anymore. So Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, like I like there was this one book uh, called Whiskey and Robots. I think there was like maybe a thousand of them made. And and, and I I wouldn't be surprised if like it was probably less than 500 people actually bought them. But they had to buy multiple copies because I kept oh, I, hearing I that about that one, and that one's one that's just like I would hear these numbers of people would be like, "I bought ten of those." Like, I, I, I have my last copy. I will not let anybody read yeah. it outside my house anymore. Yeah, yeah. That whiskey robots is out of print. Yeah, yeah. Don't let go of that one. If there's ever one of my things that's going to be like valuable or collectible, it's probably going to be that. So yeah, it's like. But they, that's the thing I hear. I, I really like that where it's like, man, you know, those are the people you need to find if you're a writer. Uh, or, or just really any kind of creative artist who outputs things. You need to find those people who will get so excited about your stuff that they turn on, like, you know, 
five, six, seven, eight people. Like, you know, that's, though, that's invaluable. You always have these people out there pushing your stuff because most stuff you get into is word of mouth, really. Like, your friends tell you, oh, you need to read this book. Maybe, maybe movies is the only example where you end up seeing the trailers or something. But for the most part, people tell you about a band, they tell you about a, you know, a book or, or whatever yeah. it is. They're like, oh, you got to come see this this variety show down at the club. Like, it's great. And that's why you go or you see things. So, thank you. Yeah, well, I know. It's funny because I, I can't tell you how many times I've bought your stuff. I've even been in, I remember years ago being in a bookstore with a, a friend of a friend. And and uh, I found Whiskey and Robots. And I just handed it to him. I said, here, read this. And he didn't move from his chair for 45 minutes. Aww. I mean, he was just so attached to it. And I... I think what I liked about it is that it, it, I mean, we talked about, like, for example, the poem, poem uh, Shine. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That one spoke to me. I remember you were talking about possibly leaving that out of the book, but yeah. I think there were so many things that you have such a way of storytelling and creating an image and a picture and connecting to people at a level that I think a lot of people haven't been connected to that way before. Y- yeah, yeah. You know, that, the, the themes of that one kind of pop up again. Uh, Later on, uh, there's you know the kind of this kind of idea of uh, like how a lot of people turned uh, kind of a hard life into something beautiful, and that's kind of to me it was like the the thing about like art creativity. It's like well, how well do you use the bad things that happen to you, and you know can you make something something beautiful out of something horrible, and, and that to me is a, a real like a kind of spiritual and emotional victory like you know no matter what it is it's like you know we have this great work of art without the without the sad tragic thing that happened to the person who made it you know mm-hmm. and you think of so many things that you like what what was the what was the motivating incident behind that and then so many times it's um you know it's like a lot of great art comes from pain and sadness and sorrow and loss and all that. Well, I even noticed, like, because I've seen you do your comedy at a couple different venues, and that, and you're reading your 12-step works and the poetry, but there is a kind of a heavy theme that you're willing to explore through all those. Even, I remember seeing a comedy thing once where you were talking about drinking the Kool-Aid. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it was great, because I can't tell you how many times I've heard somebody say, I drank yeah. the Kool-Aid. Yeah, yeah, and they don't know. And how the... fucked up it is to say that. <laughs> yeah, But yeah. you brought it out there. And at the same time, it was funny. It still really hit home of like, okay, that's not cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How, can you, how can you mention these things and, and get a laugh out of them? That's, yeah. that, that's the thing in comedy that I think is really kind of amazing. You could say anything as long as people laugh. And, and even if what you're saying is, is not cool. Like, you know, like there's people who tell racist stuff or sexist stuff. There's a lot of that. There's a lot of homophobia in comedy and whatever uh if people are laughing everything's forgiven and it's when you say something and no one laughs you'll you'll be in trouble and uh that's but that's kind of the challenge and kind of what i like and and i know it's a little bit of freedom for me it's like wow i can get up here and i can really be free to express myself all i have to do is make people laugh and i i think the first thing i i worked with um well if you look at richard pryor's um bits um his classic bits are about about fear, uh, selfishness. His real low moments in his life, 
you know, when he when he set himself on fire, you know, when mm-hmm. he's free basing, or when his wife was leaving him and, and he shot her car, uh, and you know, she's like, you know, I'm leaving you. He's like, not in my car, you won't. And, and he shoots the car. Um, these are his, his the low moments of his life, and he's that's that's the vulnerability that he was saying. Like he was joking about his fear. One, uh, I I had a sponsor who said. Uh, uh, make friends with your fear. That was his thing. Make friends with your fears. Uh, it, it, in, in like a lot of twelve step stuff, we one of the things a lot of people have to do is make a list of fears. Mm. And uh, <laughs> I made my list. He's like, okay, now make friends with them. And this was kind of like around the same time that I was like starting comedy. So I kind of realized that, like, okay, what what what's my biggest moment of shame in in, in my life? And that was during. An intervention I had when I was 19, and I, I told my parents to fuck off, and, and and I was like, and kind of also said, uh, you don't know me, right? Which is ridiculous. And you grew up in a pretty religious family too, right? Yeah, yeah. And they were having an intervention for me at this rehab, and uh, I felt like they tricked me into going. Uh, they they kind of lied a little bit to get me there, but nothing. I, I would I would advise any parent to do the same. In the same situation, uh, but I, I was really like kind of self righteous and angry about it, and I really hurt them a lot, you know. And I wouldn't go; I didn't go to rehab, I didn't stay, and I, I you know, I was very angry with them, and I, I'm very, I was very ashamed of that. And I, I luckily, I, you know, I made peace with my mom before she died on it, even uh, before I kind of made peace with my dad. And then everything was cool, but you know, yeah, I'm really that. That was like. Maybe the worst acting I, I, the worst actions I'd taken in a day, you know, it's like, it was such a thing. So that's where I started the comedy. Um, I had this joke that, you know, uh, we didn't, my family didn't call them interventions. We called them vacation, uh, (laughs) because that's what I was told we were doing. (laughs) And, uh, you know, we pulled up to rehab instead of circus circus. And, uh, you know, and I noticed that like, you know, this is why. No one brought any luggage but me, and uh, and I fell for that twice. Uh, you know, and there it is. It's like there's the funny parts of it, right. you know. And it's just like this is the only this is a way to salvage the shame, I guess. You know, and it's yeah, it is a, a darkness. You know, I talk about like how I knew I had a problem with drugs and. It was like, and it was a literal thing when I was in the punk house uh, that you probably know of. I was in that punk house. It was the old 666 house. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of my roommates was smoking speed, I think, out of a broken light bulb. And uh, he told me I should consider not drinking. Yeah. You know, he told me <laughs> I should pull it back. I mean, this is, I, really? Like, this This is who's my my compass? You know? Yeah. And, and, and it was, I was really embarrassed. I, I I thought I was doing better because like these kids are all doing drugs and and I'm, I'm just drinking, but it was so bad like all the kids you know smoking speed were like dude bro, check yourself you know, and, and so that you know that became like a little stand up bit too and it's just yeah I just started collecting like okay where have I felt really bad about myself like what are the low moments and and it's one thing like because I played a lot of those for for tragedy and in the poetry, but then I got to, uh, well, I got to comedy as kind of one of the more fun things about it is that like your challenge, how do you make a sad thing funny? 
Now, when you do your comedy, because I know the poetry, you take a lot of time and you write it and you, you go through it. Because we've talked about your process. Yeah. When yeah. is a comedy, do you just start with kind of some central ideas and then you get up there and just start riffing off it? Or where's that coming from? The poetry, man, it'll be like an image. And some of them will take like, this one I wrote that I really liked, took like about six months to write from beginning to end. But this one is like, there's one I wrote about this donut shop I used to go to. And, 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 you know, I just kept thinking about donuts and what it was and, and, you know, like whatever. And so I'm just thinking about these, these images and, and holes and, and whatever, <laughs> like, just like how, how many different ways can you talk about holes and, and all these different things. And, and, you know, so I, I spent a lot of time on that and, you know, I'm writing about stuff that happened years before. And well, with the comedy, I'm kind of free to, to just, if, if something happens that day, I like, okay, last week I, I bought an appliance from Home Depot and it didn't work. I has been, it'd been used and someone threw it back in the box but it was like after they closed, and I was I was so angry about it. I was already imagining the fight I was going to have with them at Home Depot when they refused to take it back. And you know, I'm just going to like tell this whole story and turn hopefully turn this into a comedy bit, right? About like you know, and of course I get to Home Depot and they don't care. They just took it right back. Like they don't they don't care. It's not their money. Like you know, there's some kid working at the returns desk, and you know. But I I think what's kind of Human about it is that, like, you know, I, I just let myself get really angry about it before it was even an issue. And uh, so I'll take something like that and, and I'll try to talk that out on the stage. And there's this kind of magic thing where, like, if you're being really honest about how petty and selfish you can be, people will usually laugh. And then you just let them. And then you remember where that spot was and you try to get to it a little bit faster the next time you tell it. Well, it seems like there's kind of like that building on, on top of the stuff too yeah i mean here's the thing too is like the, the poem i can work on for as long as i want to at, at home alone and the comedy like i could put some ideas together but you pretty much have to do it in front of people uh for it to work and for you to write it to practice to hone you know to edit and uh you need to also like there's a little bit of free associating that happens on stage in front of a bunch of people, that will never happen. It will never happen at home. I remember you did a poem once that I thought was just, it completely blew me away. It was, I think you call it a found poem. And it was something you had taken the words of Courtney Love. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. it was just, yeah. I remember it just completely blew yeah. my mind. But it was, I, yeah. And yeah. it was because it was, it was, you had used structural ideas of poetry, some of the, the tools. And turn it into one of the funniest things I'd ever heard. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's called Kingmaker. Uh, and I should have just called it something with Courtney Love in the title, but I call it Kingmaker because it's one of the... It's, it's she's talking about her pussy the whole time, right? Yeah, yeah. that's what she calls her pussy is Kingmaker. <laughs> and, like, I thought that was so great. Well, I, you know, yeah, I, I, I took these three interviews from these magazines, like it was like Blender and like Spin and stuff like that, and... She had done all these interviews on the same media tour while she seemed really gacked out of her head. Um, and I literally cut up the magazines uh, into just the parts where she was talking. Mm -hmm. And, you know, cause it was, it was just this, and I had these, it was just these short declarative phrases that were about the same length. It's almost like she was like ranting in verse. It was almost right there. And I just kind of rearranged them into subjects and I was like, oh, my God, this is a poem. It was incredible. It was, it, was, it was weird how well it fit together. And I was like, 
holy shit. And I quit doing it. I quit doing it. Um, one, I never really knew what the what the legal ramifications of that. They're all her words. <laughs> For one, like, did I really write this? Did she write this? Like, what is, you know, it's a remix of some kind. <laughs> um, it was so much bigger and different than all my other stuff that I couldn't follow it. I would have to finish with it. And it's like, do I want to close with this thing? It was getting a little bit bigger than I wanted it to get, where people were like, that's what people were asking for. Okay. Like, you know, and I was like, I don't, I have other things to say tonight. I, I'm not really feeling in the mood for this. Um, but yeah, it was, it was great because, you know, like that's something I could always do. Like sometimes I would, I would get a chance to do like poetry, like between bands. And, you, like some, you've done that with us before. Even. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you did the, the Christmas thing, I remember. It was the Junkie Christmas or something? Uh, oh, yeah. Squatter's Christmas. Yeah, or Junkie Christmas. Yeah, it was like kind of, it was the night before Christmas. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. That was great. Squat. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, so I had these things that I could do because, like, you know, you, you bring these things with you. And it was like uh, the Courtney Love thing I, I started doing. Like, I, I did it to kind of amuse myself and then. I was doing that like when it would be like a it would be like a, a loud rock venue and it's like oh, these guys aren't gonna really listen to like this thing I wrote about my mom and I'm like I just thought these things need a lot of thought and need careful listen and that one was like one I could like I could scream the Courtney Love thing over a crowd of of noisy people at a bar and uh, it would go over. Okay, actually, I don't know, Reeve, you got a found poem. Uh, this is from Miss Courtney Love. This is called Kingmaker. All right. I will rock my way out of this shit. This is worse than Kurt. I'm covered with loser dust. I can't get anyone to lend me clothes for the Grammys. Drew Barrymore won't call me back. This is worse than Kurt's death. Much worse. Yes, I show my tits and I cuss and I'm controversial. But I was stone cold sober then. I hadn't even had a glass of wine or Okay, maybe I'm a little embarrassed about the fact that I've been on Xanax for five years. Morally, between me and God, I don't want to take these drugs. But I need to. Yes, you do, Courtney. There isn't one pharmacologist, one psychiatrist who says I don't need that drug. The AMA agrees. I like this because she's getting like the drugs at like that top level. It's like the fucking CIA like telling you to whatever. All right. The AMA agrees. It is my inalienable right to take Xanax. And I'm about to take one right now. Oxycontin is one of the most effective, harmless, positive painkillers around. The drug is new to me actually. Yes, it's a narcotic, and it's addictive. But so are Vicodin and Tylenol through codeine. The problem is that some fucking fool manufactured the drug so it can be crushed and snorted. Kids can shoot this stuff up. They can chew it. I said I take Xanax. Sometimes I take painkillers, and that's it. I hadn't had a Xanax for eight hours. Fucking frazzled. I go home and I'm terrified. I want to blunt my pain and go to sleep. You know, what's a drug addict? Always a drug addict. And I think I'm going to die. Francis, that's her kid. And I were in the kitchen waiting for the ambulance. And I said, let's make some tea with caffeine in it. Because I've taken some medicine that I think might make me groggy. And we made great tea. She wasn't scared. We were up and active and I felt, let's make this fun so she's not scared. What parent isn't going to do that? I don't give a fuck. This is one of the very, very, very few instances of Francis' life where the child took care of the adult. 
This is not her usual household. Frances is not my girlfriend. In her life, she's had to put up with my outrageously crazy shit. I am normal to her. All I know is, the proof is in the pudding. Look at my kid, then look at me. That's all you need to know. Come here, baby, and show mommy your dress. I do, Franny, it's beautiful, but I think it may be a bit too sexy. Go try it on and we'll Polaroid it. My baby's all grown up. I can't believe it. She's tired of seeing mommy cry. Tell you what, baby, I bet the nice stylist here can make your own very own dress. And you can draw what you want it to look like. Pick out the colors and everything. Just don't make my daughter look like some 15-year-old trying to get backstage. I know that look. $40 million has been stolen from me and Francis by a fiduciary institution. I found out our dog walker is making $100,000 a year. One person put a BMW on my credit card. My daughter's trust fund has been stolen from to the point where she may have, like, nothing. I can't let this happen to Francis. Here's my imitation of my heroin addiction. Kurt? Kurt? Kurt, are you in there? He hardly gave me anything. Just the cotton, prick. That was the extent of my addiction. I have all the leading indicators for suicide. Loss of child, loss of spouse, public humiliation, civil arrest, financial collapse, displacement from home. I'm like the new Coke. I have a 10% chance of survival. I need to be saved. I'm as sane as it gets. I have a psychiatrist. I took the MMPI just because I wanted to. Other than answering yes to the question, do people stare at you in the supermarket? I'm as sane as anybody. Fuck it. Let the thermometer drop and the mercury roll to the floor. If this is God's lesson, then I'm ready to fucking learn it. They say God doesn't throw anything at you that you can't handle, so if I need to hit button, so be it. Go through my lyrics. They're great. I'm the best writer of my generation. And if you don't believe me, I dare you to find a bad line in there. I have a magic pussy. If you fuck me, you become a king. I am a kingmaker. Jack White. You are worthy of my pussy. Maybe I'll meet Jack White and he'll be my new boyfriend. Cause sometimes mommies need to get laid too. Do you know how much a shot of my tits is worth? $9,000. Do you think the district attorney would have a BB gun on my ass if I was doing a movie with Edward Norton? Oh no, if you're making movies, you're fine. Oh no, if you're doing films, oh no, you're bourgeois. If you're running novels, you're fine. But if you had the balls to be making this music, you're vulgar. And a vulgar idiot, they all think that. I thank you for your strength and your presence and being someone healing and helping me not jump out the window. But that doesn't mean I'm not going to think about it in the next 48 hours. That doesn't mean something horrible isn't going to happen. My reality is fucking hell. My emotional skin can only take so much more. These things have to stop, but somebody has to show the karma. I will survive this. I will rock my way out of this shit. This record is my shot. After this, will I even get another shot? <laughs> Fucking Courtney, man. Now, you, you tried singing a band at one time, didn't you? Or a long time ago? I, I always wanted to be in a band. And, and I always wanted to be... I, I wanted to be Henry Rollins. Like, let's just call it what it is. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I thought, that guy has, has it going on. And I'm going to be this guy. I'm going to have, like, this guy. I'll be this guy who's in a band and writes books. 
and just tours and lives in a shack. I thought like all this stuff that he did was, was fantastic. So I tried to be him, but I was like, I, I mostly want to do the spoken word thing. And, and then, you know, I thought eventually that I would be so brilliant with the, with the writing and the poems and the spoken word stuff that people would be like, we want you in our band. And a couple of people did, and it never really worked out that well. One of, the, one of the bands ended up being pretty high profile, too. Uh, one of this one guy was like, I want you to sing for my next band. And I thought he was being a little bit difficult, so I just kind of blew him off. And uh, yeah, he, Do you want to say who that is or not? I, I really you don't have to. It's fine. I'll, I'll tell you off the thing. Right, but it's right. like, basically, like that's, that band is what he does for a job okay. like, to this day. Um, and this was in the 90s when... He was like, you got to sing for my band. It's like, you know, like 20 years later, his, his band's still going. And, and I don't even know if he meant it or if that was the band he was thinking of, but that was his next band. It was like this really big one. And I'm like, uh, what? <laughs> but I, I tried and like, you know, I, I just had, I had problems with other people, I guess, you know, and uh, I, like, I, I just never wanted to surrender control of, words and lyrics or whatever mm -hmm. um but i did have some good experiences with like you know reading poetry while there were like while people played behind me and anytime i could get really a chance to do that i would and i did that a few times um you know like at the chameleon this bar i worked at mm -hmm. occasionally like some band would cancel at the last minute and uh we get a couple of the guys you know who were at the bar you know, you know, can you borrow this guy's drums? And then, like, can you go home and get your guitar and come back? And then they would just, like, kind of jam and, and you know. And then I'd do my palms. And, like, people thought we practiced a lot, but they would just play some, like, jazz. Yeah. You know, no one could tell. And, and so I would, like, so, so every once in a while, somebody would come up to me and be like, dude, I saw your band. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's probably like one of these like, there you go you put that in your repertoire now you know it's, it's i know in your bio, i yes. know it was just like it was like what was your band's name again it'd be like a lot of times i would have forgotten by then like <laughs> what, do we, what do we call ourselves at night it was like you know like you know like last to first first to be last what was this uh what we, like it was something with last to first a uh, nice guys finish first or whatever like i can't i don't know <laughs> And then uh, I, I got confused with the other guys in bands, too. Um, there was a uh, Bart Sinister. In the a 40, Bart Sinister? Yeah, yeah, in like 45 Grave and all these okay. like goth bands and stuff. And so people would say I was him. Uh, it, and uh, also there was Buck Naked, and uh, a lot of people thought I was him. And uh, this is kind of pre-internet days. So like we would like some people who knew us both, Somehow our numbers get crossed, and sometimes I get calls for him, and he get calls for me, and we we kind of knew each other. It'd be like, "Hey, this guy dropped off this thing at my house. And he thinks it's yours. Like, you know, like, I think it's yours. And like, you know, and you know, somebody would show up and just, you know, so knock on my door. I'm like, I want to give the drum kit back. I'm like, okay, I just take it, and then call him. And like, you know, like, hey, some guy dropped off a drum kit. I think it's yours. And he's like, oh yeah. Like, oh, funny. Yeah, it was just this point. We looked nothing alike. But it was just like we're just kind of had the same kind of we had the same kind of name, and then we kind of ran in the same circle. So people were like, "Do you know where Buck lives?" And they were like, "Yeah, he lives over there." And it'd be me, not him. Oh, so, funny! Yeah, yeah, that was an awesome club too. I remember that. There's some good shows. I remember seeing Little Princess there. I don't know if you ever saw them. No, no, the legendary show. I miss it. A hole did play there. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, back um, 
She was uh, dating uh, this guy in Leaving Trains. Yeah, yeah, Falling James in Leaving Trains. Um, he was one of these guys that, like, they were, like, on SST. and Okay. They were a band that would play naked a lot, you know. It was one of those things. And the other the chameleon really liked them. And then this was, like, some kind of, like, package deal that she got talked into. And it's funny now because they ended up being, like, who's the other band? Like, now, like, you have to explain who Leaving Trains are. But, right. you know, it was, like, that was kind of it at the time. And it was, like, all, like, 20 people showed up. And it was, like... There was this big, like, alternative technical show, like, right down, like, you know, the other side of town, like, at, at what's down the Independent, uh, the Kennel Club then. Oh, okay, I remember, yeah. Yeah, yeah, there was, like, this thing where it was, like, these three days where it was, like, the Virus 100 show was, like, right around then. Yeah, it was, like, this big AT show. It's, like, you know, the Alice Donut was playing and stuff like that. And, like, it was, like, all this popular stuff. So, it was, like, you know, there was only, like, a couple hundred people who liked that kind of music in, in San Francisco at the time. And, and like, you know... They could fill up any one club, but like if right. it was competition, you're you're SOL. <laughs> well, then it's also I know San Francisco. For people who don't know the city, is if a show is happening in the Mission, it's probably going to be the most well attended of the three, simply because that's where the most people are li- living, and so yeah. they're going to go to the closest ho- show to their house. It's just there's a convenience factor too. Yeah, the Western Edition was a little more popular than. Um, than uh, the mission at the time. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and uh, because uh, it was closer to Hate Street. Oh right, and, yeah, yeah. And like there was a time when Hate Street was full of rock clubs. Hate Street, yeah. It's, <laughs> like, is there even a rock club on Hate Street anymore? I don't even. There might be like a, a bar where, but you know, you can get like, rock clothes. I know that. Yeah, yeah. You could, totally. you could go down there and dress like a rock star yeah, from yeah, different you eras. Get rock even. shoes, but yeah, at the time there was. Um, the the Chameleon's other club, like the owner owned the night. The night break that was yeah, cool. And that's yeah. how she bought. The chameleon was. The oh, okay. Yeah, it was a night break, and the I Beam was the big one down there. Yeah, and and, and uh, that's like I Beam, like you know, they they that was home like of all the uh, slap funk bands that were popular, like in the wake of Primus. Ugh, yeah, I um, that. So it was like it was great because I never saw Primus there, but I saw all these other bands that wanted to be Primus, and and, and it was basically like just idiots with a six string fretless bass who had no business <laughs> with such an instrument. You know, it was like guys who could barely play. They, they, the, the first bass they bought was like some kind of like Les Claypool, like monster bass. And, and, you know, they're just, you know, whatever. It's like your first car being a Ferrari or something. Right. It's like, uh, you should work your way up to this. Like, you, just, <laughs> you should just start here. And they would just, you know, just murder that stuff. It was like, and then, uh, you know, other bands kind of like Melvin style play over there too. Yeah. So, Forgive me, but when you moved here, I remember we talked about this a long time ago. Because I, I want to get back to the poetry for a second. Oh sure, yeah. Is you actually used to do? You kind of got hooked up with kind of the what was left of the beatnik scene in North Beach, right? Oh yeah, yeah. There was there was like you know kind of like the last living people of that thing. Jack Hirschman's still around, although he's beat era and he's not beat, and he will tell you that. So I'm, I and many other people have made a mistake going, oh, you're one of the beats. And he's like, no, I mean, I'm not, a, I wasn't a beat poet. I'm a socialist. And <laughs> and he's got like some very different opinions, uh, but he was of the era, okay. you know, and he was like, you know, he had a book on, he had a lot of books with City Lights. He edited the Artaud anthology. He's still around. He's like done amazing work throughout his life. Um, but other than him, you know, like there's not many people around now, and at the time it was Jack Michelin that was still around. Um, Gregory Corso was still around. There was just kind of like the B team, mm-hmm. you know. It was like you know, even though Ginsburg was still alive at the time, he was not hanging around North Beach. 
But like these other people you'd recognize, and you still see Lawrence Ferlinghetti around there quite a bit, you know. And it was it was, was kind of cool. Like you know, here's you know Neely Tchaikovsky was around a lot. Who was like not a beat poet, but he was like a kid who hung out with the Beats. He was like a teenager who lived in North Beach, and and he ended up writing a lot of the books about the Beats and stuff like that. Oh, cool. And, and he was a poet too himself, and uh, so everybody who knew that stuff knew him. And he was still young enough to be lucid, and uh, and uh, he's actually a super nice guy too. So. You know, he would actually like humor me and my. And I was like, "Tell me a story about Charles Bukowski." And he, <laughs> you know, he would actually tell me. You know, this is real sweet of him because I was just such a big beaming fanboy. But I really thought that, like, you know, I had this picture of, of San Francisco, uh, which was actually came from a picture, um, came from a lot of pictures that Allen Ginsberg took of of, of of the Beat era, and I thought this is what San Francisco is like. You know, you're just going to Cafe Trieste, and here's all these poets hanging out. So I'm going to go up there, and I'm going to hang oh, out. Was that where they used to hang out? Yeah, yeah, Okay, yeah. okay. Right up there, and, like, you know, I'm going to go up there and, you know, hang out with Bob Kaufman. And, you know, I bet, like, Lawrence Ferlinghetti and Alan Ginsberg are just in there right now, like, drinking a cup of coffee and wondering why aren't there any young people doing poetry anymore. Isn't that a great you know, thing about growing up in the Midwest, though? Because I, oh, yeah. I came out here with those same thoughts in my head, like, I'm going to get to California because California was just like one big city yeah. in my mind. And all these people would just be everywhere, you know? And, yeah. You know, and, and, you know, I just wander in there with my poems and they'd be like, finally, here you are. You know what I mean? I really did. I, like, I think like, the second day I was the, the in town. The prodigal son finally showed yeah, up. Yeah. Yeah. The second day I was in town, I barely, tur- I, you know, I just turned 20 a few months before. I'm so naive. Like, you know, I, I just really thought that like, you know, my second day in town, you know, I, I took a bunch of poems to City Lights Bookstore. Was, you know, this first order business, go get published. Oh, uh, yeah, no. I, and and, and I, I, I gave them handwritten poems on notebook paper. Aw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, this is like 89 or something. And I was like, here you guys go. Here it is. You know, <laughs> and I just kind of waited for them to call. You know, and they didn't. Uh, they did send the poems back, though. That's actually really nice of them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they probably figured that was the only copies that you had, so. Yeah, they're just like, let's make sure we get rid of this guy. He's worth a stamp. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, you know, I didn't leave myself with just stamped envelope because I, I knew they're going to take them. They're going to need those. I, you know, I these was, are y'all's copies. Like, don't worry. Like, these, you know, uh, I, you know, and, and and that's what brought me here. Yeah, you know, and and brought me to the bay. Um, I also uh, thought Gilman. Street was like in San Francisco. I didn't really understand. I thought Berkeley was a neighborhood in San Francisco. I thought it was like the hate or whatever or the mission that it's like a couple blocks within San Francisco. I didn't really know. And I guess most people would ask someone or look it up or try to find out for sure. Not me. Um, <laughs> so I moved to San Francisco and like rudely found out that Gilman was actually kind of far away from where I lived. And I couldn't walk over there like I thought I was going to be able to. So, yeah, that was, you know, because I, I was like, I'm going to be in the punk scene over there, which is wicked awesome. And, and then I'm going to be in the, uh, I'm going to be a poet, too. And uh, that's that's my way. You know, this is my path in life. Things didn't really work out like I thought they would. Uh, I, however, I did meet a lot of super cool people. And San Francisco was just uh, like, it was a drain hole for like all the country's fucked up weirdos. Like all these weird people just showed up. Like, like like I had. We didn't know any better. Mm-hmm. Um, I met almost right away about half a dozen young poets who kind of had the same idea I did. 
they're going to move to San Francisco and become famous poets. And we're all kind of like, what the hell? What happened? Uh, but we ended up becoming really good friends, and we, we hung out a lot. There's one of them I still hang out with, a Razor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I still hang out with him all the time. Like, we, we hang out good 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 amount. We didn't really know what was going on. We did the best we could. But there was also, like, just some really fantastic things that were going on that I, I didn't realize until years later I was there at the start of, like, these cool things, like a lot of the homo course shows, uh, which were happening mostly in the city. Mm-hmm. And uh, also, uh, Diet Popstitute had this variety show called Clubstitute. And that one really kind of shattered all notions of what a show should be for me. Like that, you know, it was so creative and weird that I was like, okay, I thought I was kind of edgy and strange, but apparently I've been kind of in the middle. And these people are off on the edge. And, you know, because uh, they would, like, it would just, you know, they, I remember one night I saw an all-drag version of Carrie done live on stage. And that was just like, you know, and they had, like, I read this, they had all these knives on this little wire that that they were supposed to kind of pull it over at the mother, you know, and, and you know that scene? Mm-hmm. And they got, somehow, like, the string got stuck on something. It's kind of like a clothesline-type pulley oh. thing, and it got stuck. And so all the knives were, like, stuck in, like, halfway across the stage. And you know, and and whoever was playing the mother just kept had just had to keep screaming and screaming and screaming, like so the scene went break, <laughs> whatever. And I was just like, what? I, it was it was so creative and, and strange and beautiful and weird. I was like, wow, I, I didn't know you could do this. <laughs> I, I didn't know you could be like this. And uh, what I didn't know at the time too is kind of the sad half of that part. It's like most of the people in that scene that I really liked and got to know and became friends with were all HIV positive. And it was like 89. So it was like a death sentence oh, for sure. Was... You know, like they didn't live much longer, you know, and it was, and it was this thing of like, you know, I'm going to go out, but I'm going to go out in style, you know, I'm going to go out like partying and performing and being beautiful and glamorous. It was kind of sad. Cause I was also kind of like the last guy in the gossip loop. So I'd be like, Hey, where's so-and-so. And then everybody kind of look at the floor. Oh, wow. And I'm like, Ugh. And they're like, oh, yeah, she, she moved back home, you know, which is cause when people started to kind of turn the corner, right. they would move away so no one would see them. And, and you know, so it was, it was a, little, a little strange, but, it, like, but at the same time, it showed me this whole other outlook on creativity and life and everything. And to where, like, a lot of the punk scene after that seemed kind of conservative, like, like as far as, yeah. like, yeah. as far as, like, tone and voice and everything. Like, like politically, they were, like, you know, liberal, but... But they seem like kind of like wow. Everybody kind of looks the same and sounds the same, and and you know they have a very very narrow idea of what music and punk should be. There was a lot of norms in the scene, for yeah. sure. Oh yeah, yeah. And I think I think you, you went through a lot of this, like you know, trying to play like solo sets. Oh yeah, and, I used and, to, and, you know, I like used to I, get all kinds of shit because I'd be a gay solo punk artist and what was worse is i didn't fit the stereotype of what gay was oh yeah yeah and so there were multiple levels of this is how somebody's supposed to be this is how punk's supposed to be yeah. this is how gay's supposed to be and these were things that weren't merging <laughs> properly for people and that created a lot of conflict yeah 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 because i'm just i'm just remembering this now like it's funny because i was talking to you i was like oh yeah like because it's been so long since then but i was like yeah i didn't remember seeing like eric play some like you know like some, like, like solo acoustic stuff which is like for some reason like you know eh, it's acoustic it's not punk 
Yeah. yeah. Why? Like, you know, it's like, because it didn't fit in one of these three, like, you know, punk-approved categories. Exactly. It's like, you okay, know? we've only got these genres available, so which genre do you want to be in? Yeah, yeah. But yeah. that's, you know, you brought up a good point, though. That's one of the things I loved about when I came to the city is I, I had this set idea of how life worked, how things worked, how reality was. And I remember just, especially being new to San Francisco and the Bay Area is, I couldn't walk a block or two without having something happen where I go, okay, that system of reality no longer serves me. That one doesn't work anymore. That one's not in place anymore. And then also coming with that, that Midwest naivete. I remember walking into, uh, you remember Cal Foods on 18th Street? Oh, yeah, yeah. So I walked in there once on a, on a Saturday night, and I was buying a six-pack of beer, and, and there were all these guys walking around wearing uh, leather chaps mm-hmm. and uh, buying Crisco. Mm-hmm. And I said to the woman at the counter, I said, uh, and my, I had a pretty heavy accent at the time. I said, oh, you know, uh, back home, you know, we'd just be we'd drinking beer on a Saturday night and just, you know, hanging out. And so I didn't think I'd come to San Francisco and everybody would be dressing like leather and baking pies all night. Oh, yeah. yeah. And she looked at me like, <laughs> oh, my God, he must be a serial killer because, like, everybody knows why these guys are dressed in leather and bake, you know, like, yeah, where, yeah. You know, I really didn't know there was another use for Crisco. Yeah, yeah. Like, I was... Yeah. You know, but it was like literally like every couple days, but it was great. It was so cool because like I could, it was almost like acid without the drug because like I couldn't walk more than 20 feet without somebody saying or doing something. I'd be like, well, that's a new way of looking at the oh, world. Oh, yeah. Cool. You know, just you know? like, yeah. It, for me, I've been, I'd even been in like drug scenes before I got here, but I, I didn't know what people were going through so much tinfoil for. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like I'd hear people talk about parties like, uh, have any tinfoil in the house? Like, what? Well, why the fuck would you want tinfoil? Like, what are you doing? Like, you know, you're wrapping a sandwich up? Like, you know, like, I, you know, <laughs> it took a while. Like, I, it was weird. I'd done a bunch of coke in LA and everything. I was not like a, a like, but it was just still this thing that like, you know, smoking speed here was so big, you know, it was like, it's already a thing here. I just never really noticed it before, I guess. Yeah, well, it's funny too, you know, talk kind of tying through the 12 step stuff too, is, you know, and being sober is, it's funny how people in that community too judge other people's drug use and drinking. And so, like, oh, yeah. alcoholics will often look at other people and go, well, I'm not that bad. And then those people look at the alcoholics and go, well, oh, that's really pathetic. And for sure, for sure. Um, and this is one of those things that, like, I, I, I love talking about. I have, uh, you know, W. Uh, Kamal Bell. You know him. He's got the oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Buy show now. Uh, yeah, he, I've, I've known him a long time. He's one of the guys who helped me get into comedy. Uh, he, he's a great thinker. I, I just love the way he thinks. Like, he just he's, per, he actually helped produce a friend of mine's uh, solo performance. Oh yeah, yeah. He taught a bunch of that. Yeah, he's, brilliant. He he's he he just has. Like, I just love the way his brain works. Yeah. And uh, I just get together with him once in a while, and we just like you know, I'd read a book, and then I just call him like, I want to talk to you about this thing. You know, we just talk for a while, and one of the things that I, I used to love talking about with him is just this weird, like, the weird things that happen inside drug culture, where it's like, race isn't nearly as important as, like, what drugs you're doing, and not only that, it's, like, how you're doing it, and that's, like, the big divider, you know, because we'd always talk about, like, how society divides along, like, race and gender mm-hmm. issues and things like that, you know, and uh, there's, like, this weird thing in, like, in, in the drug world. Like, you will hang out with anyone who's doing the things you do the way you do it. Oh, and yeah. that's your thing. It's You are no longer, you know, of a certain ethnicity or religion or a gender. 
you are an IV heroin user, or you know you smoke crack. You know, <laughs> like well, it's an identity that supersedes all others. It does, it does, because like you know, like you want to hear some hate. You talk to some like IV drug users about people who are doing the same drug, but they're only smoking it or something. They will just tell you like they're wasting it. They're doing it wrong, <laughs> you know, and like those, and they'll talk about them like they're not even real drug addicts. Yeah. You know, oh, these guys are just, you know, part timers or something. And, and they say all these horrible things like someone like, yeah, just because they're, they're smoking heroin. You know, it's no. like, oh, that guy's not a real that drug addict. Who's he trying to fool? Poser. You know, it's kind of thing. <laughs> like, wow, that's, that's horrible. But yeah, there's like a whole hierarchy that, that goes on in that what your drug of choice is. Yeah. And I know it's funny because for a while in 12 step meetings, like it was like everybody was riding the speed train. Oh yeah. And yeah. then there'd be like another, you know, but there's like these waves that people go through and. Yeah. I and saw like a, a brief wave of four loco people come in. Of what? Four loco. What is that? Uh, it was this, um, it was like kind of an energy drink malt liquor thing. Oh, I remember. Okay, yeah, they, yeah, they've yeah. changed the formula since then, but it, it had um, it was getting a lot of people in trouble. Like a lot of people were having blackouts during it, and that's what kind of put them in meetings. Okay, I remember that. Yeah, because they would black out and wreck a car or something, and then they had to come to meetings. I hear all these young people talk about like, yeah, you know, it's kind of normal. We start drinking this four loco, and then you know, and and it would it would have so much energy drink stuff in it that you wouldn't feel yourself getting drunk. Oh wow! But the energy drink stuff wears off after like an hour. Kind of a speedball effect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and in a can, and wow. and and then like they would they would have twice the amount of liquor they're used to consuming, and then when the uh, the speedy parts wear off, all of a sudden they're just a blackout city. You know, wow. the the alcohol takes over, and then they're just gone. <laughs> and then like they change the formula, and I haven't heard anyone talk about it in a meeting since. Yeah. That concludes part one of the interview with Bucky Sinister, done by Eric Kaur. Music by the Gillbillies. Thanks again for checking out Music Live Radio. I'm your host, Dan Sauter. We'll catch you next time. But first, let's leave with a poem by Bucky Sinister. It's called Drowning on God's Urine. And the Lord said unto Cain, Cursed ye be, for ye hath made the ground drink of the blood of thy brother, spilt by thine own hand. A fugitive and a vagabond ye shall be, lo, all thy days. And Cain didst reply, Lord, this burden is too much for me to bear. Once forth did the Lord unzip his holy pants and did pee into a bottle. And when this bottle was filled with a holy golden liquid, he gave it back unto Cain and said, Cain, this is bourbon whiskey. Drink of it when you can no longer bear your burden. I am an organic robot driven by a tiny driver inside me. The tiny driver keeps me awake at night on long crying jags and complains about the undeserved amount of disrespect he receives. I pour booze on him in a feeble attempt to shut him up. If you are a bad child in Japan, on Christmas Day, all you get is a 24-inch replica of me.
during an alcoholic blackout. The toy of me does not run on batteries or solar power, but on lunar power. At night, it turns itself on and won't stop talking. The toy of me knows a lot, but remembers nothing. The toy of me is the second least popular robot toy in Japan. The least popular robot toy in Japan has a name that translates to the low self-esteemed robot turkey who needs lots of hugs and whose feathers are made from jagged metal bits. In the anime cartoon that was made to promote slumping sales of both toys, both the turkey and I die at the end when we catch God pissing whiskey from the sky and we can't stop from looking up and we both drown. <laughs>